Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you're transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust that you're using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in the life of a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. Please turn with me in the Holy Scriptures to the Old Testament book, 2 Kings and chapter 5. As you're turning there, let's be reminded that prior to the tail end of Israel's history as we know it, which we would call the exiles and their captivities, that they experienced at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians, Israel had other enemies. And at the time of the writing of uh, first or second kings, or the time that's being recorded, Israel's enemy was not Assyria or Babylon per se, but Syria, or another term for Syria is Aram, A-R-A-M, and that's what some of your translations are going to say. They were always going back and forth. And this was kind of the, the way international relations operated. There was always little skirmishes and wars and mini captivities going on before the really big captivities. And last Sunday, we tried to answer the question, can God actually be gracious while we suffer the curses of this fallen world? And we answered that yes. We discovered that God shows grace to everyday people in the midst of threatening consequences like debt and death and deprivation. In today's text, we have a continuation of what I would call miraculous reversals at the hand of the prophet Elisha. And we see this here in 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to read most of the chapter and then pray and then we'll dive in. 2 Kings 5, the word of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. The king of Assyria, and the, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore its clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. 
And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. Father, these are the words of life for us today. Lord, Scripture would fall and crumble if we did not have even these stories. For your Holy Spirit has breathed them out long ago by prophets and writers for us and for our salvation. Lord, we thank you for what it meant to the original audience. And Lord, I pray that we would discern how in 2023 such an ancient text could be miraculous and transformative enough for us. Lord, there's nothing in me that I could say or do to embellish this text, to make it better, um, to garnish it. Lord, I need you. So I pray that you would give me clarity and simplicity. Lord, speak through my own weakness and my own inabilities. And I pray that your Holy Spirit now would teach every person to those who may be away from Christ or not in Christ and here, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, the day of humbling. Lord, I pray that you would grant a kind of powerful renewal in our church. Lord, I need it. We need it. Lord, I pray that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit in this hour now. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of my past coaches used to say, sports just doesn't build character, it reveals it. That's very true. You put somebody in the pressure cooker of a close game and a bad referee call, and 
emotions will bubble quickly. In a similar vein, as it pertains to the life of faith and how we relate to God, miraculous reversals sometimes reveal miserable flaws in a person's faith. You would think that to see something miraculous would actually make somebody believe. But indeed, there are story after story after stories in the Bible that, yes, attest to the fact that a miracle can change somebody's belief about God and relationship to Jesus Christ. But sometimes those larger-than-life supernatural acts mess with us, and they expose flaws in our faith. So I believe our text today is going to help us answer a question that, that is this. Where, when, how are we most prone to fill our need for healing with some form of greed or self-dependence? How are we prone as humans to fill our need for healing with some form of greed or self-dependence. So what we have before us today in this great story in 2 Kings 5 are not only two connected and true stories from Israel's blighted past. This chapter presented to the original audience a kind of fork in the road for those who need healing. Their choice was the difference between transformation and tragedy, grace and disgrace, One fork in the road is rather unimpressive and narrow. The other fork appears spacious and glamorous. And we today are like Israel in that we have the same choice that they did. So today's message is summed up in the fact that God's grace is hostile towards those who aren't humble. God's grace is hostile or seems hostile toward those who aren't humble. So I said there's two forks in the road in this story. The first fork is what we just read. We see in the life of Naaman, grace for the humble. Grace for the humble. Our story has several characters, but Naaman is a Gentile. He's a pagan. He's the main one. So we see in verse 1, Naaman is a great Syrian army commander. It says there that he was a great man with his master and and in high favor with him. He was both esteemed by his boss, which was the king of Syria, and he was befriended by him. The, The phrase in high favor actually suggests the idea not just of, hey, good job, buddy, keep up the good work, but somebody who actually favored him by his countenance. You can tell, right, when somebody likes you, when somebody is favorable towards you, just by the expression on their face, right? And this wasn't just a matter of business transaction and, and, and foreign affairs. Naaman and his boss had a deeper bond than just war. Naaman was the kind of person that the man's man actually looked up to. It says here that he was a mighty man of valor. He was somebody that 
He wanted to be like, in a sense. And in case there's any doubt, his decorated military exploits for his country were sovereignly sovereignly granted by the Lord. Isn't this curious what verse 1 says? Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. You expect by him, the Lord had given victory to Israel. That's where scripture surprises us. It doesn't always tell us what we want to hear or think is right, but it's saying clearly that God is the sovereign of the nations and that God had sovereignly given victory to this great commander, Naaman. His record was great, but he was a leper. These five words overshadow and undermine all that he had ever accomplished. And the one thing that he seemed like he couldn't control was his health. Decorated war veteran and his, if we can call it, his Achilles heel is the fact that he's a leper. Now, when you read about leprosy in the Old Testament, um, if you read just a little bit, you say, you hear it's modern day Hansen's disease. Probably nine out of 10 of us don't even know what Hansen's disease is, so it's not even going to help us. All right, probably closer to what we imagine, if you've heard any kind of teaching on leprosy, is that it's the kind of skin condition uh, that, that made your skin look grotesque and fall off. You would probably lean more towards thinking about somebody like a zombie. You know, you hit a zombie and the part falls off and they just keep going through. That's what Old Testament leprosy was. But probably a little bit closer to what it actually was because Naaman had a wife, all right? Naaman was able to work, all right? So somebody whose, you know, appendages are falling off and is constantly sick and worried about what's going to fall off next probably is not very valuable to the workforce. So this is probably more like what we see on TV commercials, you know, during prime time of those uh, drugs for psoriasis, you know, patches of, of skin that are, are diseased, they're white and they're blotchy. All right, that's probably more closer to what Naaman struggled with was a, a condition similar to psoriasis. Now remember, he's a Gentile. So he's not subject to the laws about lepers in the book of Leviticus. But above all the accolades of his career, shouted the accusation of his illness. You wonder if a guy like that would have traded all his exploits militarily just to be healthy, just to not have to keep scratching his body and coming up on dead ends for medical help. Enter the second character of the story, verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Now, this seems rather benign, just like more ink in a story. But I want you to think about this. This little girl plays a supporting yet vital role. We never hear from her again. Because you know what? What this is describing is that part of the business of war, these international relations, is that military commanders like Naaman regularly trafficked human beings. This little girl was trafficked. She was ripped out of her home, her parents, her country, and taken as a slave. It's just what they did. 
But the Bible isn't endorsing this crime. Please, let me just reiterate. Just because the Bible records something doesn't mean that it's inking its approval for us. This little Israelite girl, probably no older than a teenager, was the personal servant to Naaman's wife. So we don't know. We don't have any exposure to all the emotions of being ripped away from dad and mom. We just have this kind of -of matter-of-fact statement that here's this Israelite slave girl in service to a Syrian, a near enemy of Israel, working for the military general's wife. And she says something. Like the Bible says, out of the mouth of babes. In the ESV, it says, would that my Lord, if you have any other translation, it probably says something like this, if only. Which doesn't, this phrase doesn't occur much. But just like a child, she says, as only Master Naaman could see Israel's prophet, not a doctor, not a king, this little girl knew something. This little, new, this little girl knew where true power was. And without any bitterness or resentment in her tone, she tells a leper where to find healing. The faith of a child. And I pause here to speak to parents. Parents, don't, ust- don't underestimate the power of instilling God's truth at an early age in your children. This girl got ripped away from everything she knew and what she did, instead of getting bitter at God and bitter and uh, becoming like racist against Syrians, we see that she is trying to help a man. And you, you never know, parent, that through the twists and the tragedies that your child will face someday, you never know how God may kindly cause them to return to the big truths that you spent teaching them and instilling in them. This little girl knew where the power was, and she wanted her boss man to have access to it. Then in verses four through six, we have another character come on the scene. It's Naaman's boss, the Syrian king. And Naaman comes and tells, tells his boss, hey, I've got this little servant girl, and she, she told me about this, this guy in Israel who, who can heal me. So just think about that for a second. The great military commander believes a little girl, his servant, enough to go to the king and say, hey, can I, can I take a work leave and go and try this out? And Naaman's boss absolutely greenlights his desperate quest for healing. And in fact, not just like, yeah, go ahead. He outfits him with an impressive entourage and an expense account. We see that in verse Five, he says, the king said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes. I mean, this was a lot. He wanted to make sure that he could pay for this service. And what Naaman was simply doing is Naaman was following kind of the diplomatic decor of the day. He was following a chain of command. He knew how to honor command. And so they assumed, well, this is how you play on the international stage. So let's be prepared in case we have to pay a generous sum for this kind of healing. That's how much Naaman's boss, the king, believed in him. So he writes this letter to King Jehoram, the northern 
king of Israel. Now in verse 7, we have a little bit of a surprise. Jehoram doesn't take this too well. What the Syrians thought was like, hey, this is just we're asking for a favor. Jehoram sees this more as a taunt or as a threat. And in anger, he tears his clothes. Usually to tear your clothes in the Bible in the Old Testament was a sign of mourning and affliction and repentance. This wasn't that. Jehoram was seeing himself getting played. And in anger, he tore his clothes. This wasn't a sign of true contrition or mourning. Jehoram doesn't see before him a sick, humbled human. And so Elisha gets wind of it. And Jehoram kicks this over to Elisha, or Elisha hears. Jehoram only saw intimidation. And see, this is the thing. As an Israelite, Jehoram should have known better. His judgment is clouded by generations of idolatry. So he won't even bother to acknowledge the man of God in his very own kingdom. So when Elisha gets wind of Jehoram's tantrum, he intervenes. And then in verse 8, Elisha sends a message motivated by a godly conviction about the true God of Israel. Let's look at that in verse verse 8. When the... When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. This phrase, that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel, wasn't self-referential per se. All right? This was a way of Elisha. This is another way of saying, so that Naaman, Naaman may know that there is a God in Israel. So Elisha, he's up for that challenge. He wants this guy to get healing, and he wants this guy more so than to be healed. He wants him to know who the real God is. Now, granted, these Old Testament prophets are a bit quirky, so his his bedside manners, if you will, seem a bit distant. And his prescription to Naaman is rather unimpressive and narrow. Elisha sent the messenger to him, so he doesn't even go down to see this grand general. You know what the general is expecting is at least some some give and take here, at least some presence with this, this, this healer. So Elisha does what he's done before and will probably do in the future. He sends this messenger saying, go tell Naaman to wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman doesn't like that. He became angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hands over me. See, Naaman in his pride exploded and left. Naaman was expecting some kind of fanfare or hocus pocus. You see what the word is saying there? It's saying, I'm expecting that this prophet's just going to come and just do this like, you know, wave his hands over the spot and then I'm going to be fine. I mean, he wanted... Syrians were used to somehow placating their gods. So he was expecting some kind of, some, something grandiose, something spectacular. And he would have gone to great lengths to do that. In, uh, in other words, Naaman wanted healing on his terms. He said, wait a minute. You want me to go to the Jordan River, which, by the way, was about a two-day round trip. 
So it's not like the Jordan River was in, in Elisha's backyard. They're in Samaria, and they got to go and go to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is not, you know, known for, uh, uh, for having many Airbnbs near them. All right, you just didn't go vacation there and go swim there. It was, it was a dirty river. Lots of, lots of dirt. Very unimpressive. And he says, if, if all I have to do is just go, go in a river, why can't I just go back home and go to one of the, the two rivers back home? I can do the same thing and get the same effect. So he thought. In other words, Naaman, he's skating on thin ice in his pride here. Naaman is, is wanting healing, is wanting intervention on his terms, at, according to his expectations. But thankfully, his servant, servants intervened again in verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, this is a very affectionate way, referring to him. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to, to you. Or some translations might say, if the prophet had spoken to you to do something greater, wouldn't you do it? Either way, they're saying, they're, 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 they're talking him off a cliff and they're saying, hey dude, all he's asking you to do is go dip in this river seven times. How hard is that? Wash and you'll be clean. Funny how it goes, huh? The servants got it. The guy with all the education and the medals didn't. He wanted his way or the highway. So I don't know if, you know, Frank Sinatra was kind of in his mind at that time, you know, having it my way, but he was getting awfully close because that is a very lethal, a lethal way to live your life according to my way. What if his servants didn't talk him down? Well, yes, the first servant, the little girl, gets him in front of the healer, and now he's in front of the healer. So what we see in, in Naaman not is, not, is not an absence of pride, but a suppressing of it. Twice, Naaman is intervened by his own servants, and he listens to them. In a sense, what we have in the story of Naaman is strategically placed in the books of Kings, marks for us what God has been doing over the course of Israel's history in saving Gentiles. You could call this a kind of conversion story of sorts, Old Testament style. Can't necessarily say that this is baptism, but it sort of reveals the spirit of baptism and coming to faith in Christ. In order to come to Jesus Christ, you must come to him on his terms, by his way, as he says, according to his words. So that's why baptism is super important. As a kind of closet Baptistic church that we are, uh, we make a big deal about baptism. And, and sometimes, maybe some of us grew up, at least I did, grew up, you know, I mean, yes, baptism, but, you know, we're not saved by baptism, so we kind of suppress and squelch the importance of baptism. No, if anything, a passage like this goes to show us something distantly even about baptism. I could not put it better 
than a guy named P.J. Lightheart, who has written on the book of Kings. Listen to this. It's not on the screen, so you've got to test your listening powers. He says that baptism is an insult to the wisdom of the world. Through the foolishness of water, God has chosen to save those who believe. Baptism is a stumbling block for the powerful who want to do something impressive or at least have something impressive done to them. God says, trust me, let me wash you up and you can become a temple of the Spirit and sit at my table in my kingdom. In other words, he says, become like a little child and believe what I say about baptism. So the point here isn't get baptized. The point here is to humble yourself. Because before you can ever display your following of Jesus in the waters of baptism, you have had to have this work of the Spirit that says, bow the knee. Bow the knee to the only one who can forgive you of your sins. And so when we come to the waters of baptism, we are saying, in a sense, no other gods but the God of the Bible, the God of heaven. No other Savior but Jesus. That's what we say and confess in baptism. So here we have this this dipping into the river, into this dirty river, not because of the water's efficacy and power in and of itself, but because God works through the humility of people. Naaman was not saved by finally giving in. It wasn't necessarily his action. But it was the powerful word of God that as the prophet had spoken, so it happened again. So we reach the climax of the story in verse 14, where Naaman finally humbles himself a second time at the word of his servants, and he dips in the Jordan. And he comes out after the seventh time with the skin of a healthy, innocent child. He is permanently cleansed of his leprosy. He, he now looks a lot younger. This battle-scarred, sick commander, in a sense, has found the fountain of youth. And he is thankful. Now you imagine, imagine the trip back home. But it wasn't a trip back home, so he's at the Jordan River, And what does he do? Does he go right back up to Syria, going north? No, he goes right back towards Samaria. And in verse 15, he returns to the man of God, his whole entourage. And he came and he stood before him. He said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. Remember, this guy earlier exploded in his pride. And he humbled himself and found that God can heal him. See, Naaman's transformation is a sign in the Old Testament that God is about saving Gentiles too. In verse 15, if this isn't a clear confession of faith, I don't know what is. He confesses faith. There is no other God in this world but the God of Israel. And he's he's thankful. That That is the right response to being saved from your worst problem. For Naaman, physically, it was the leprosy. And it's like, you come back and he says, how can I ever repay you? Well, his boss had some foresight and he was loaded. 
He says, let me, let me, let me give you some stuff, Elisha. Please take this. And Elisha said, verse 16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Elisha's refusal of remuneration shows us that the word of God's prophet isn't bound by connection to deep pockets. Elisha is actually free to preach the word of God, speak truth, without having to worry about any kind of financial perks. And so Naaman tried to insist, and he didn't, Elisha wouldn't budge. So we, there's this, now he follows up with this weird request. Then Naaman said, verse 17, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So this is probably similar to if you've had ever been to or have known anyone who goes to the Holy Land. What he was asking for from Elisha humbly was, uh, yo, Elisha, can I have a little bit of holy dirt from this holy land? Because he wanted something, uh, uh, some kind of visible um, remembrance of his salvation in a land where no one else was a follower of Yahweh. We didn't know what he was going to do with these loads of earth per se, but what he says is, we see belief in verse 15, and in verse 17, we see repentance because he says, I am not going to offer to any, I'm not going to offer to the gods anymore. He's bringing back this token. And then he says, in verse 18, okay, speaking of this, uh, please forgive me, Master Elisha, because my boss, he goes to the house of Rimen. Rimen was the, was the, was the Syrian version of Baal, all right? So he is not the true God, but the Syrians had a temple, had all the, their, their religious practices, and he says, see, part of my job description is that I actually have to walk the boss into the temple, and, you know, there's all this, like, fanfare, and I, he's kind of holding on to my arm, and uh, please, Elisha, forgive me for that when I go into this house and he's leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of, of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And you know what Elisha says? He says to him, go, shalom. Elisha is not sweeping this under the rug. Like, oh, we'll make an exception for you. No, Elisha understands the spirit of this man's repentance. He goes back to his land, confessing Yahweh is probably one of the only people in Syria to confess Yahweh as the only God. You know what, church? This is probably not far off and unlike what many minority Christians in the majority world feel. You're now a Christian. Maybe you had to do your baptism in secret or at night. Maybe you have to attend church at night. But Naaman is going back to an area that was not sympathetic to the God of Israel. And he wants to know, he wants assurance that he's going to be okay being a Yahweh confessor if he has to go into the Baal temple, into the Rimmon temple with his boss. I, I learn a, a sidebar application to this that we see in this kind of rough Elisha character. 
is that God's prophets are also gracious. Elisha didn't say, Elisha wasn't like throwing down the law and saying, the letter of the law, you cannot. Elisha understood that this man had truly believed and repented. And he gives him grace in a sense saying, it's going to be okay. You're good. Naaman discovered that if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. Now let's read the rest of the story. Verse 19. When Naaman had gone from him, that's Elisha, a short distance, Gehazi, sometimes some people pronounce it Gehazi, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, Shalom. All is well. My master has sent me away to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim uh, two young men, the sons of prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him, and he tied up two talents of silver into two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his own servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, Gehazi took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, like snow. So the first fork in the road and the story of Naaman, the story of Israel, and your story, is there grace if you humble yourself? Yes. But if you don't, there is disgrace for the haughty. That's our second fork, the disgrace for the haughty. So we rehash Meanwhile, back in the prophetic residence at the top of the hill, Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, he got bit by a bug of opportunism. And he hatched a plan to get a piece of the pie that Elisha just stupidly left at the table. And here, in this rationalizing that you kind of see in the thought bubble of Gehazi, we see another kind of pride or haughtiness manifested in the Israelite Gehazi. In a matter-of-fact kind of matter, he goes back. He convinces himself that this is all okay. Gehazi goes back to Naaman and updates him on the situation at Elisha's house. And Gehazi relies on himself to make something happen to his advantage. And Naaman doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he's still riding cloud nine on the way back home. Like, sure, yeah, of course. Have two talents of silver. See, Gehazi wasn't just greedy. Gehazi was probably bitter and was seeking to take advantage of this Gentile. 
though Gehazi lies to him. No problem doing that. He can justify that. And as, as he goes home, it's like, I mean, this is, this is the perfect uh, predecessor to the parent-child showdown. You know, the seven-year-old who isn't supposed to eat the ice cream? And uh, because it's not time yet, it's not dinner time, and there's a little trace of ice cream there. And, and mom says, uh, I'll just call him Rufus, right? Uh, so, Rufus, did you eat some ice cream? No, mom. Really? I think you did. See, a parent knows. Eyes in the back of the head. And like that parent, Elisha knew what Gehazi was up to. Had Gehazi forgotten God's power in his, in his master? It's not that Elisha was somehow omniscient. There were no crystal balls in Israel. But Elisha was sensitive and cognizant of the spiritual powers at work. He says, in a sense, like, where, where you go, I go. And you went to see Naaman, didn't you? Gehazi's ruse is completely exposed. So in verse 27, just matter-of-factly, the leprosy of Naaman, Elisha says to Gehazi, shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. Just like that. Gehazi goes out from his presence, a leper, like snow. Gehazi is condemned to a lifetime of leprosy. Friends, you could say it this way, that Gehazi got the, Gehazi got the diseases promised in the covenant curses. All these diseases shall plague you. The Gentile humbled himself. He puts himself out there, even though he didn't want to. You know what? That is humbling what Naaman did. You imagine in your, all your military gear, and you have to go kind of near skinny dip in the Jordan River. Your whole entourage is there. Everything that Naaman did to become clean, he did in the open. What Gehazi did, he did in the cover of the, his darkened mind. A few principles are at play here. First of all, don't uh, take care not to justify your transgression in God's name. Notice what Gehazi did. He said, he said, um, in the name of the Lord, as Yahweh lives. Back in verse 20, as the Lord lives. And see, we do this. Don't point the finger at Gehazi like, well, what a stupid idiot. And we do the same thing. We often justify sins and breaches of the covenant with God. And, and when we do these, like, these moral gymnastics to put ourselves in the right, Don't justify your transgression in the name of God. This goes for all kinds of things. You can apply this anywhere. At least, if you're going to tie this back to the Ten Commandments, here is one place where instead of saying, oh my God, Gehazi said, I think, God's, I think God can bless this. Friends, do not use God's name, God's power to get what you want. Another thing you can take away from this is be careful what you lust for because God just may give it to you. We have this window into Gehazi's soul. He was greedy. 
He was covetous. We go in the 10th commandment. And God gave it to him temporarily. He got it. But sometimes getting what we want is, is not good for us. Be careful what you desire, what you lust for, because God just may give it to you, and it could be your ruin. Also know that greed clouds judgment. I mean, when you're just baking these plans in your mind to, to, to kind of up your net worth a little bit, have a little bit more dignity and rise in the, in the, in the perspective of your fellow servants, I've got this and I've got that because I was with Elisha, this and that. About it is judgment. But spiritually speaking, beloved, greed is a betrayal of God because it seeks first our righteousness and all the things that we could add to it. That's greed. Greed is not seeking first the righteousness of God. Greed is seeking first our righteousness, our welfare, and all the things that we can add on it. And then we give ourselves a thumbs up. Not so. Avoid this kind of disgrace of pride. May I remind us, though, that our Lord Jesus used his own saliva and mud to heal a blind man. Would that blind man be would that blind man be seeing if he objected and heard Jesus expectorate into the ground and hear Jesus like mashing his fingers together like what's going on No if you want change if you want transformation you will do what it takes you will humble yourself so yes bring on Jesus's spit with the mud of the earth that he created and heal me But I also remind us that Naaman comes up in the New Testament. Get this. When Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, he went to church or synagogue one Saturday, and he was asked to do the, the, the reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And he, he probably knew that some kind of showdown was coming. You just don't leave home you know, for, for a couple of months or years and come back and doing what you're doing and expect things to go well. As he sat down reading his portion of the scripture from the Isaiah scroll, Jesus said, today this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? You're not saying what? Which is why Jesus said in that same passage that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then, after saying that, Jesus said, and there were many widows in the days of Elijah... And there were many lepers in the time of the prophet Elisha. And get this, in the time, and the only leper that Jesus, or that Elisha cleansed was Naaman the Syrian. Of all the people that Elisha could have cleansed from leprosy, only Naaman. Okay, and Jesus didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't cleanse everybody and exercise every demon from every person, no. In the same speech that Jesus gave in that temple, he knew their hearts. And he said, you're going to say someday, physician, heal yourself. Indeed. He heard later on, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. 
It is this one who would be mocked with these words of heal yourself and save yourself, come down from the cross yourself. He is the one who implored from that tree, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is he who the psalmist says, redeems our life from destruction, forgives our sins, and heals us from our diseases. The psalmist saw it. The Lord Jesus would be that great physician on a tree, bringing lifelong, eternal healing. Saints, if you don't humble yourself, you'll find God's grace to be distasteful and boring. In fact, you'll mistake God's grace for something to be hostile. This is, this is why. I, I think our story in Naaman is a bit of a precursor to what James wrote when James wrote that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And what do you do knowing that? He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Naaman had to go from the status, the, the, the laughter, the prestige, and humble himself. From joy and exaltation to gloom. That is the course of following Jesus Christ. Friends, there's a difference between humiliation and humbling Humiliation implies shame. Humiliation is an assault on your dignity as a human. But in humbling ourselves to God, you will rediscover your true worth and your true dignity before God. So to ask you to bow the knee to Jesus, to turn from your sins yet again, is not asking for you to be humiliated and shamed. For whoever confesses his sin shall find mercy. And I ask you today, will you humble yourself by taking up the cross of Jesus, following him into the waters of baptism for the rest of your life? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this word. I pray, Lord, that you would preach the perfect message to our hearts as we eat now and as we go from this place today, a better message than I ever could have preached. May your Holy Spirit continue to show us how beautiful and sufficient our great physician, the Lord Jesus, is. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more information about joining us for a worship service or taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.